I never once thought that maybe because they lived in America that their belief systems were changing too. What are my values? What do I really want to do? Time isn't running out. My journey gives me a different perspective on life. Everyone is like that. I kind of feel a little more fearless in chasing music all the way. I want you to learn that there's a difference between speaking poorly about your parents and speaking clearly about things that are affecting you. The fulfillment is not going to come without hard work. You know in your heart kind of who you are. It's the right choice. It's 100% the right choice. When you're they see like those questions. Hey, There's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Desi Condition. I'm Thonushree. On today's episode, we are chatting with the aforementioned Aisha, who is a gender-based violence advocate and journalist. We'll be talking about some of the ways that both men and women face violence in relationships, particularly among immigrants in South Asian communities and different barriers that they face to getting out of those situations. Hey, Aisha, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into this? Yeah. So uh, like you said, I am a journalist. I specialize in race, immigration, and political issues. So specifically, I write about issues that deal with um, ICE, the current administration, and how they're influencing minority communities, uh, whether it is um, the rise in hate crimes throughout the country or just generally um, what's going on um, in the news that often goes underreported. Um, I also uh, work on the side and volunteer as a gender-based advocate. That means um, I am uh, sexual assault and domestic violence trained uh, by the state. I used to work for a nonprofit um, in which I was a linguistic counselor for South Asian women who needed um, services after facing different forms of violence. Uh, so after leaving that field uh, full-time, um, I now do that on a volunteer basis. And I try to incorporate um, those issues that I see and work with um, into the articles and stories that I write. So how did you get into this kind of work? So I actually um, majored in uh, gender um, gender studies and uh, within policy. So I studied sustainable development and um, gender parity politics. Uh, I got my master's in that in undergrad. Um, in an undergrad, I studied journalism and political science. So I started volunteering um, at first at the UN Women, then um, at Monavi, which I ended up taking as a full-time job. So Monavi is a South Asian-based organization that works on issues of violence against women. It's actually the first ever um, organization of its kind in the U.S. So it was great that I was able to work there. Um, and I just kind of got sucked into it. I loved it so much. Um, and personally, I did... Um, see violence in my life, um, not myself, but um, the people I knew. Um, the first story that always comes to my mind is when I was younger, um, my family in Pakistan had a maid who was honestly one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. And I think I was about 14 or 15 when she got married. Um, 
And she passed away because of um, violence from her husband. And I remember that was the first time I really met someone who experienced violence at that level. Um, and at that age, I kind of didn't understand. But as I got older and um, as my mom was very encouraging and getting involved in volunteer activities, especially when it came to my community, um, I kind of learned what the issues were that women faced um, within the community. And of course, men also face these issues. But in my experience, I mainly worked with women. So because of that, um, I was really passionate about learning on how we can help women. And at the time, um, I thought it was education. So I studied uh, different policy initiatives on education. But then you kind of realize that um, so many issues are faced that don't have to just do with education. Uh, so I got into that because of um, my passion for this and just my general experiences in life. And then um, I always loved writing. So when that opportunity came to take it full time from a side gig, um, I just couldn't say no. So that's how I ended up here. And it's been a year of full-time writing. Um, before that, I, like I said, I worked in um, nonprofit work and then I moved on to the state level by working for the state, um, doing the same job. So um, I've implemented some programs with language access because that's one of the biggest issues that I saw that not only were these um, individuals who are facing violence unable to get the resources they needed, but if those resources were available in their areas, they weren't in the language they needed. So having resources available that you can't read or understand or um, just have access to because of language barriers was an even bigger issue because people kind of wore that off. Um, but yeah, there's just so much I feel like that goes into it that kind of just uh, sucked me in that I, I I couldn't help but be involved. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. I want to talk about, you mentioned education before and how you initially felt that an education access, education access was the solution to this problem. How did you realize that it wasn't and why isn't it? So I always kind of thought, and that's actually what you usually see when it comes to nonprofits, especially in South Asia. So to clarify, obviously violence happens everywhere. It doesn't discriminate, but um, I look at it through a South Asian lens because of the work I did within that community. So South Asia encompasses um, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Maldives, Bhutan, and Myanmar. And within these countries, what you see the most is if you look at nonprofit work, it's always on education. People are always emphasizing education. Um, and that's kind of an education is a way and a tool for opportunity. Of course, I'm not going to deny that. But um, a lot of times I feel like um, in a lot of spaces, we emphasize education as the key to avoiding a lot of issues. Um, and obviously poverty is eradicated through education as well. But it's not the sole answer. Um, and I learned this because I was actually, I volunteer with another nonprofit. It's called uh, Thaka Foundation. And we have um, schools in different sites. So one of our schools was in um, Pakistan. Um, so I worked a lot on that project because um, I have a Pakistani descent. And um, we kind of talked about, about these different issues before I got into um, work in domestic violence. And when I did start working in the field, you kind of look at things differently because once you're working in a specific field, um, you see things that you don't always see reported. Um, so I started having a lot of clients who actually were doctors, lawyers, engineers, all the fields that you would think would not um, face these issues because people would call them affluent. Um, 
outside of that in general, people always focus on, um, like when you think of domestic violence in India and Pakistan, for example, and that's on the news a lot lately, you kind of um, go back to villages. So people focus on these villages and how these villages have so much violence. And unfortunately, a lot of these villages do have violence and it might be tied to education, but that doesn't mean the places that do have people that are educated and in big fields don't face that. It's often because it's more hush-hush there because they feel like they have a reputation to protect. So I learned that through my work at Monavi that a lot of people who are in these affluent communities do face violence, but they're more um, silenced about it because of the images that they have to uphold. So I had, I know one client I remember who was a doctor and we had so many conversations about um, financial abuse and how she wanted to leave the relationship, but she said that she had no money. But the odd thing was to me, I remember when I talked to her about this was she made more than her husband. But the issue was that he knew exactly when the paycheck came, what bank account it went to. And her fear was that if I go one day and I ask for my bank account to change or for a check in hand, what's going to happen when he doesn't see that deposit hit? So we talked a lot about that um, in many cases at Monavi because I started noticing these different patterns because people kind of assume like, oh, someone who's educated is not going to face violence. And you kind of see that in the Me Too movement as well, how um, so many of these celebrities came out about violence that they faced and people never expected it because they were known as strong women. And a lot of times we unfortunately equivalent a strong woman and a resilient woman to someone who doesn't face these issues. Like, oh, a strong woman would be able to leave a relationship. But the truth is that you don't always have that power too, because domestic violence and um, in general is an issue of power and control. It's a cycle that the abuser always has power over the other person in some way that you might not be able to see. It's a very interesting point that affluence means a, a lack of sight into violence. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. How do we reveal those issues, you think, as a society? How can we, how can we, uh, I guess, put a spotlight on those issues and where they come from and the fact that we even need to deal with it? So I think the biggest thing that I've seen over, um, so there's never like one solution, right? But the best thing is always every community has different needs. Um, And the biggest thing I've seen is, and I know a lot of people said originally that the Me Too movement didn't encompass minority communities, but I feel as though in the past few years, a lot of communities have kind of um, reclaimed the movement and made it their own. And the biggest thing you could do is believe survivors. Mm -hmm. I think that the biggest issue that survivors face is, um, victim blaming. There's always that, oh, if you have money, how are you stuck in this situation? Or if you have education, how did you end up being in a situation where you weren't able to report it? I think um, not questioning and just believing someone's story is the number one step. Because if you don't feel comfortable enough to share your story, you're not going to be able to um, seek justice about it. And unfortunately, our justice system is one where rarely do survivors ever get justice. Um, most cases don't make it to the court. And the ones that do, about one out of nine, I believe, even um, get any justice in the situation because of so many different factors that play into the judicial system when it comes to this um, issue. 
So I think that the number one thing is to believe someone to make them feel comfortable enough to talk about it, because unless we talk about it within communities, it's not going to spread um, the awareness for it, I mean. And I think that one of the biggest things that we used to do um, as an organization and I've done as an advocate in my experience is we would do these community um, or a community little hangouts, or we'd call them community chais, where what we would do is you kind of spread awareness in little groups at a time. So in comfort zones. So you kind of make a small group and you bring up these issues and you don't bring it up to necessarily as domestic violence, but talking to people about women's health or men's health. And in general, what is mental health? What is domestic violence? Because a lot of the times, um, People who do face these issues don't identify them as that. Like I saw a lot of cases where you kind of had to um, listen to someone and identify what they were facing. Um, And a lot of times like our calls that I would get, like clients that I would speak to weren't in person. They were on the phone through a hotline um, and you kind of have to watch out for it. So someone would say, make like a note and say like, oh, this person hit me, but they would keep talking Um, because they didn't realize that this is domestic violence because it happened once. So saying like, oh no, like he only hit me once. He's not abusive. It's not domestic violence. It happened once um, was a common thing. So I think honestly, just having an awareness of what this thing is, like what is domestic violence? Like a lot of times people don't understand that domestic violence is also um, emotional abuse. It's not Mm -hmm. just physical. So Firstly, talking about what it is, kind of bringing that awareness in the community, then having the idea that there is support. So kind of building awareness in different spaces. Um, I know that a lot of religious institutions are starting to try to build those spaces because they have these issues arise and they don't know how to deal with them. So kind of having like the um, having somebody there who is able to connect. So connecting resources to who's there, because a lot of times things are present and you just don't know. Um, I personally didn't know that there was a South Asian organization that focused on domestic violence in New Jersey. And it was the first one until I had to look it up myself because I was looking for internships. Um, Outside of that, I didn't know that the country has over 16 South Asian based organizations. So the fact that every single um, county in most states has a domestic violence organization and then added onto that, they usually have cultural organizations. So whether you're Middle Eastern, there might be one. Whether you're African-American or identifies Black, there may be one. Um, they're a South Asian. So it's incredible to kind of know that these resources exist. How can you allow others to access them? It's kind of interesting that this... Uh, lack of education in what domestic violence is kind of comes from, hey, I, I actually do have all this education and affluence um, and therefore I'm not going to talk about it. And then it's like it's like this positive feedback loop, right? It's like, I'm not going to talk about it. Therefore, I'm not going to get educated on it. Therefore, I'm not going to be able to identify it. He hit me once is not an isolated incident. It's not random, right? It just means there's something else going on. And I just, I just find it really interesting that the, um, the, the, the mindset of like, Hey, I'm educated. This shouldn't be happening to me. And so I'm not going to talk about it. It actually feeds more violence in a way. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's, and a lot of the times one, another issue that arises is that you're not just thinking about yourself. Right. So I think, um, so I'm like thinking about this in a South Asian lens because, 
um, I am South Asian and the work I do is with South Asians, right? So if you think about it, even within these communities themselves, um, the issues become even more, uh, people become more isolated when they face violence because of cultural barriers. So now not only do you have those barriers because you're known as affluent or you're known as education, uh, education, educated, but because you are South Asian. So you first face all these general issues as a human being and all the expectations you have. And then now it narrows down into the expectations you have as a South Asian. So as a South Asian, you know, you don't want to come off as, um, you know, like, oh, I'm facing violent because um, what is the community going to say? What are mm-hmm. the community members going to say about my family? Or what are the community members going to say about what's going on? So, you know, like the whole phrase, mm-hmm. um, that <laughs> plays a factor. Um, not only that, it's also maybe your spouse, significant other, whoever's, um, or your parents, whoever are um, inflicting this violence on you have a good reputation. Now you have that um, education to know, like, oh, I shouldn't ruin my family's. Um, and that's not even just education formally. It could be um, mm-hmm. something you've been taught over the years. So that in itself is also um, a source of learning that like you've been conditioned not to talk about what's going on in your family because this isn't a public issue. This is my issue. Um, and then- so true. Yeah, we talk about education like it's a solution, but you can have the wrong education. Exactly. Um, and then it goes on, maybe this is the norm of your family that, oh, for years you've been seeing this, that, okay, if I speak up about it, like, am I the weak link because my family members have faced this and they never said anything. So it could be generational abuse that gets passed on as culture. Um, and I know we've seen that, um, uh, we coined a term at Monavi that was called um, frozen mentality. So this happened a lot in communities where someone migrated to the U.S. Um years ago. So let's take you migrated to the U.S. in the 70s. So now you migrated in the U.S. in the 70s and your family back then treated women really poorly. Um, And again, domestic violence faces everyone, but most of the scenarios I have do face women, um, unfortunately, because uh, men are often silenced even more about this. And we can talk about that. But in general, let's say you come, uh, your family came in the 70s um, and there's been a pattern of violence against women. Now, a lot of the times you might be conditioned to believe that this is your culture. And because this is your culture, if you stop this violence against your spouse or significant other, you are no longer connected to that culture. Now, this frozen mentality doesn't understand that, okay, maybe your family has progressed since then. So if you were to go back to the country that you're from, let's say like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, et cetera, this pattern is no longer happening. But because you left while it was happening, you believe it is. And to preserve the culture in a Western world, you need to keep doing it. Um, that was an issue I saw a lot of the times. And then, of course, the biggest issue was I'm educated. I know I shouldn't be in this relationship, but what will happen to my family? And I saw that a lot, um, especially with DACA recipients. So I remember I had a, um, a woman who I was working with who was a DACA recipient and her family got dragged into it because she said, I'm leaving this relationship. Um, I don't want to be in it. Like I'm into my, I'm facing domestic violence. This isn't okay. And her abuser said, okay, I'm going to report your parents to ICE because her parents were undocumented. Now that ends up keeping this person in the relationship because not only um, are they being affected now, 
um, their parents might be impacted. And a lot of people don't realize that. Like I know I've gotten the question, like, why doesn't this person leave? It actually takes about seven to eight instances of extreme violence for a person to leave a relationship. Um, that's the statistic. And unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't have to do with them. It has to do with um, different members of the family. Now, I've also seen instances, let's say that you were here in the U.S., you were educated in the U.S., and now your family is back home. So everyone thinks, okay, your family is abroad. So, you know, you don't have to think about that wrong. Um, you might be facing violence here in the U.S., but then your abuser's family is also in the same country. And they're telling your family that, okay, if you leave this person, then they're going to threaten this person. And a lot of times with um, when it comes to these things, like the threats seem real, especially in countries where violence is very relevant and easily um, impacted and influenced by money. Um, we also see that like another issue, even if you might, let's say you're educated in um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, your home country, you come here in the US, you're unable to find a job because of your immigration status. So now you have the education, but you're stranded at home because you can't get a job. And if you were to leave, you're not documented, or maybe your paperwork um, and your education doesn't transfer. Often what we see is a high degree um, might not transfer and might not be equivalent to a high degree in the US. So someone who has like a master's from India, it might transfer over and convert over into just a bachelor's. So they might not be able to get the job that they want. Um, so there's so many factors that go in and education kind of plays a fact into it that where people think that, um, assume if someone is educated, they can't be victim to violence, but that's not the case. And often that's kind of used against you because it becomes that double bind that, people assume that you're, you won't be facing violence because you're educated. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, you get this image to uphold. Um, and because of that, often you kind of see that reportings focus on people who are um, uneducated in many communities because it's kind of more believable, unfortunately, to see that violence can happen in that community as opposed to someone who might be considered affluent, educated, or in a good space. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned illegal status, right? I mean, I hate to say that word, but I guess that's what it's considered. Yeah, undocumented. Yeah, right, and undocumented. Um, you, yeah, you meant you talked about undocumented um, and being undocumented and how that can affect whether or not someone stays in this relationship. Um, I want to talk about that a little more, and then also kind of shift gears into the type of violence that the domestic violence that men face? Yeah, of course. Okay. So um, when it comes to immigration, uh, that's actually the biggest tool of violence minority communities face. Um, and that's because not only is the system against them, but now the person who they're facing abuse from is also against them. Um, and that, what I mean by the system is that immigration is very tough in the sense that um, let's say you do come here and you're not, you're, you are documented. Um, those who come here on um, H1 and H4 visas, let's talk about that first. So H1 and H4 visas are work visas. So an H1 visa is a work visa. So a working permit visa that you get from your employer H-4 visa is whoever you're um, supporting, uh, they get that visa. So let's say I get an H-1 visa from my workplace. Um, if I'm married, if I have children, they may be able to get an H-4 visa and come with me 
Now, what restricts these people is that unless they have an authorized um, to work, so an employer authorization, uh, which is an EAD, and it comes very difficult, they cannot work. So now I have this spouse at home who cannot work, and I'm the only one working. Um, so that already gives me a power dynamic. Um, what happens? I have more power than them because I'm able to go um, work. And before the Mob administration, actually, um, these people couldn't even drive. So you could be here on an H-4 visa. You can't even drive. So now what are you restricted to? You can't work. You can't drive. How are you going to get groceries if you need to go out? You have to wait until your H-1 uh, spouse or significant other is home. Um, so many different factors played into that. Um, so because of that, because you are restricted to not being able to work, not being able to drive, um, and actually the Trump administration tried to um, rescind this. So they tried to get back to um, take away these different um, things that were granted to people on these visas. So made it even more difficult in the last few years. Um, now, if you are restricted to being just at home, um, you already have that power dynamic where this person has more power of you because they control the financials of you. Now you're in a separate country. So maybe you're not even familiar with the U.S. because you are on this visa. Um, a lot of times when violence happens in the relationship now, if you leave this relationship, you get deported. That's it. So let's say you are married to someone on an H1, you're on an H4. The minute the divorce gets finalized, you need to leave the country. Um, and this was an issue because obviously... Um, you know, like, what are you going to do now? Uh, let's say you have children. That doesn't mean your child is going back with you. That means you're going back alone. So I saw a lot of issues like that where um, women weren't told this or men weren't told this, um, that they would have to leave. And that's because um, there's the VAVA Act, which is the Violence Against Women Act. And it also applies to men who face these issues, but um, that's what the act was called. And the VAVA Act um, is they give out about, I would say, and I have to brush up on this number, but I think it was about like 180,000 visas uh, a year, right? Okay, and people are like, oh, that's a lot of visas. Oh, no, it's not for the amount of violence that faces. And then the trick is you can't get this um, authorized for it unless you have documented violence. So now let's say you're facing domestic violence for 10 years. You never called the cops at all in those 10 years. I'm sorry, you, you never face domestic violence. That's mm -hmm. how it comes off to authorities. So now the system is against people who are survivors. Why? Because the system doesn't understand that not everyone's going to call the cops. And now language access goes into that because we saw instances where people did call the cops. But what happens is when the cops come to your door, like, oh, somebody called 911. You don't speak English. The cops are going to speak to the person who does. Um, so I had an instance where somebody's case was completely wrecked because um, the cops came to the door. They asked to speak to who called 911. The woman doesn't speak English. Her mother-in-law spoke up and said, oh, I called 911. She was abusing me. She was arrested. So what ends up happening is that the survivor, the victim of the violence is taken into custody as opposed to the actual abusers. Why? Because they don't have that language access. And now the unfortunate add-on to all of this is that now if they don't understand what language you're speaking, how will they identify what interpreter you need? And oftentimes what would happen is that 
um, within South Asian spaces uh, specifically. So fortunately for a lot of Spanish languages and Latino, uh, Latinx languages, they have um, the availability and they have um, in-house interpreters within like different um, departments that speak these languages, but they don't have them unless there's a threshold. So now for usually for South Asian languages, they don't, and they're considered exotic languages. Um, that's actually what the state calls them. Um, we've been trying to work on changing that, but they are called exotic languages. Lovely. So these, yeah, <laughs> for these exotic languages, um, we saw a lot of issues where someone would say, Hindi, like do you, Hindi, you want Hindi? But this person speaks like, Punjabi. And because they understand the person is saying Hindi, they just say, okay. So now you have a Hindi interpreter coming and speaking to this Punjabi person. And the Punjabi person will say, it's okay. Like, you know, like, um, and oftentimes they might say like the Hindi interpreter will pick up on this and say, okay, this person isn't speaking Hindi. They're speaking Punjabi. And the person will say, okay, but a Punjabi interpreter won't be available until tomorrow morning. So what is the survivor going to say? Oh no, just I'll, I'll take you. I understand your Hindi. Mm -hmm. Um, that happened to me. I was a Urdu interpreter and I would have people, I'm like, they're not speaking Urdu. And they say, oh, because the person from my language isn't available. And I'm like, oh, and they're like, but I understand you. I'm like, you understand me, but the language barrier, even though they're similar languages from the same root, some yeah. of the words aren't going to translate the same way. And um, we saw that and I would have to like uh, reach out and tell the court about that. And it was unfortunate that these issues kept arising. Um, so there's like a lot, and this goes into like how men face violence too. Um, and it goes back to language access. So language access affects men um, and so does immigration specifically as well. So people don't talk about how men face violence and it's the even bigger, right? It's a whole masculinity complex where people say like, okay, and within South Asian communities specifically, okay, like the man is supposed to be like, you know, in charge of the house. Now, if this person is facing violence, the whole idea of back to what will people say, like, am I not man enough is going to come up. And now this issue arises, especially with immigration, because let's say somebody has immigrated here and this was the most common case that we saw. So it's not restricted to this, but um, this is the most common case where you saw immigration as a tool because someone immigrated here and they're um, dependent for on someone else. Um, so the idea was that people often assume that men marry women for green cards in the US, but you never really think about the other scenario that this man who's getting married and his um, he gets a green card, right? After the relationship, is he facing abuse? Nobody talks about that. Mm -hmm. And we had some instances where a man would say, okay, my wife is abusing me and I don't know what to do because, um, well, if I leave this relationship, I'm, undocumented. I can't stay here. I need to go back. Um, and then also, what will my parents say? And I remember this one guy I worked with, um, I spoke to him on the phone and he said, um, you know, like men are supposed to be which means like the line of the house. And I'm just sitting here and I feel like a little puppy. I don't know what to do. And I can't tell anyone about this because what are people going to say about me? And I remember like um, when I was speaking to him, he asked me like so many times, he's like, is this confidential? Like you won't tell anyone my name. I'm like, of course, like we don't tell your name. We're not going to contact your family. Like nothing is that going to come up. And then he like explained, he's like, oh, like I tried to tell someone about this, but my wife is so small and I'm like a pretty big guy. So no one believes me. And he's like, that's also an issue. He's like, I don't want to like fight back because I know I can hurt her. 
And then we have issues of like coerced reproduction. Um, and that often is also talked about only in terms of women. And we hear that with issues where people remove condoms in the middle of sex or people force women to get pregnant. But we never talk about how that affects um, uh, men. So what happens with men? Maybe somebody doesn't have a child. And the whole idea goes back to the same thing, like, can men be raped? And this issue, I feel like, is always talked about. People say, like, can men be raped um, by a woman? And for years, I feel like um, a lot of spaces never talked about this because they're like, no, if a man is aroused, like, he's doing the penetrating, like, he can't be raped. But that's not the case. Like, obviously, men can also be raped. And this is an issue specifically that's not talked about in communities. And now when it gets narrowed down to the South Asian community, it's not talked about at all. Um, and then uh, the same thing with men and dating violence um, with uh, transnational abandonment was one of the biggest issues I knew that um, Manavi as an organization focused on, and that's what kind of put it on the map for um, organizations within the U.S. So transnational abandonment is you get married to someone because your parents, let's say, made you, right? And now you leave that person at the airport. So let's say you get married um and I apologize. I know these are like big issues and I feel like I kind of, I'm like desensitized now in talking about them. So I'm kind of just dropping them in on you. But so let's say um, you are in India, um, you live there, right? And I'm just using India because of a specific case that I'm thinking about. So this person is in India, they get married, the guys in the US. Um, and now uh, you have to wait a few years because your paperwork has to be processed for you to come to the US. So now the family is like, okay, like, you know, the paperwork is processed, you go, um, or like, maybe it's not processed, they're just saying it is, and they say, go, go to like, you know, your husband, this person comes here, um, the husband just leaves them. Um, we specifically had a case where uh, somebody took their husband, um, they were in the US, they had a child, uh, the husband didn't want to live with this person anymore, because it was a forced marriage. And finally, uh, he had the courage uh, for lack of a better term, to decide he wanted to leave it. He told his wife, oh, um, we're going to go to India for vacation to see your parents. Um, he takes them to JFK Airport in New York, uh, goes, why don't you use the restroom before we board? I'll hold your passport and stuff because I don't want you to lose it. You're really careless, etc." Um, She comes out of the bathroom, he's gone. She doesn't have any of her paperwork. So why do... Why does that happen? Um, honestly, I don't know. I don't know why people do this. I don't know why they think it. And it's not even just couples. Um, people do it to um, the elderly. So we had a case where somebody's um, ba or grandma was visiting and um, they left her at a gas station. So they left this like 80 something year old grandma who couldn't even speak English at a gas station because they didn't want to take care of her. And I don't so know. The why. rationale is really just, I, I don't want to be with you or I don't want to care for you anymore. And so let me just take the easy way out. Yeah. So I honestly, I, I know when we think we talk about it, um, like in spaces with uh, advocates, one, some people kind of play devil's advocate and they say, maybe they think that, oh, cause they're at an airport or they're at this kind of space. Um, an open public space, they'll be able to find someone who speaks the language and be able to find help. Uh, so that's why they leave them in these spaces. But it just doesn't make sense. Um, I think the most crazy thing to me is like they leave them without their paperwork. 
So like, okay, let's say they wanted to leave them in the airport so that they have somebody like they can see someone, let's say like the same culture as them who they're able to like ask for help. But then if they don't have their paperwork, how are they going to go back? And I know that, um, in one instance, um, what I was told is that, that they took the passports away so that the person couldn't come back. So the idea was like, okay, they knew the embassy would take time to develop the passports. So until then that buys them time to like disappear. Um, and I had one case where the woman's um, uh, husband came to visit after so long um, in India. So she's been stuck in India. She's been waiting for her husband to come like visit her because he dropped her off in India. So he dropped her off at her parents' house. It's been like two, four, two to three years. And he's like not visiting. And finally he visits her and she's an American citizen. And he says like, oh, like, you know, blah, blah. Like he like spends the night, whatever. And then the next day, all her, all her stuff mm-hmm. is gone, like, all her paperwork like her passport, everything. So she can't go back to the US even if she wanted to because she doesn't have a passport now. So she called us and we contacted the embassy and they needed certain documents. Now she didn't have any of them because they were all gone. So um, working with these kind of uh, cases is difficult because the abuser knows what they're doing um, and they're well like researched. We've also had instances where they're really affluent people. Uh, I will never forget how we looked up actually. And um, we had this one person who was talking about her husband. She was scared. She's like, I don't want to um, report him because he knows so many people. This guy ended up being like, I think it was um, Intel. Like he was like a vice president of like Intel um, locally. And oh. we're like, what? Um, so this man was making like over 200k a year and he had was giving his like wife a salary of $20 a month and he's like this is all you get and he would be like disappear for days so she had no money for food no money for so many things because like uh, uh, things that she needed because um, of this and it's like it's crazy to think about like how and some people even work in these spaces so you see you find abusers who work in this space so someone um might be working in domestic violence um, awareness and they are actually an abuser. So what does that mean? They know all the different dynamics of what it is. So I think it's um, unfortunate. And obviously all these scenarios apply to men as well, but they're just less reported. So you hear less stories about it. So um, I'm sure like there's instances where men have been left at the airport or men have been left in their home country. Um, And, um, the only thing is like, I can only speak of what experiences and stories I've heard myself. And the most main ones that I've heard when it comes to men is on immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an unfortunate reality. And um, I think the biggest factor that plays into it is when you have children, it's even harder um, for people to leave because uh, the scenario you often hear is that they're a good mother or they're a good father, but they're not a good spouse. Um and then going back to how we talked about, like um, men also face the dating violence. So in a lot of, um, now I think the stigma is starting to end, but I know like um, early on in some communities still, dating is like a big no. Um, and it could be because like parents want their children to focus on maybe like education. So like, oh, focus on school. Why are you dating? Get that degree. Or it might be like in our culture, um, dating is like not okay. So for example, like in a lot of Muslim cultures, like dating is considered haram, which is like forbidden. You shouldn't be dating because it like leads to, they believe it leads to like physical activities, which is um, you shouldn't do before marriage. Mm -hmm. Now let's say you're in a relationship, you know, you don't tell your family, you don't tell your friends and you're just dating someone. 
And now that dating relationship becomes very violent. And it could be from somebody lying about a pregnancy because that's a type of violence as well, or somebody like being abusive physically. Um, Now, what ends up happening in that is that you're stuck in a double bind because let's say you want to speak up about that violence. You might think that, oh my God, if I do talk about this violence, uh, my family's going to ask me why I'm in the relationship in the first place. Um, and that happens a lot where people don't know what to do because um, the fear for their family exceeds the fear of their abuser. So they become more afraid of their family members than of their abuser. And now what does that mean? Like, okay, no matter what, they feel like they're going to face abuse. So they might as well go ahead with it. Um, so this issue is very relevant within um, teenagers usually who are developing. And that's why like to combat this, we always say like, try to have a healthy relationship with your children and have them have that space or have someone where they're able to speak up. Cause if they are facing this, you don't want them to do it alone. And um, I know we've had instances where um, it escalates. So it might get worse where it ends up being um, in a situation where you can no longer hide the violence. Uh, but yeah, there's just, I feel like so much goes into it, but like the, the one good thing about these different issues is that there are resources out there. You just kind of have to um, be able to find them. And um, it is often difficult, but um, there are many resources out there in places that are starting to speak up about the resources and how you can support them. Yeah, and this sounds really, really difficult. And I'm definitely not a stranger to, you know, certain, not that I've worked with this, but like, I've definitely seen cases in my life, too, where it's just like, how, are, how, are, how is this person even going to get out of this fine? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with with the fact that it can be this, this impossible and helpless, right? Um what can you at least as an individual, and I don't mean you, Aisha, but I mean like you as a person, like if you're in a, a situation like this, what can what can that person do to start to guide themselves out of this? You know, if they if they can't get to an org, I don't know, like does it help to have copies of documents and stuff? Like what what can what are the small things that people can do? Yeah. So the number one thing that we always say, and even with organizations are working with them, um, just to clarify, um, a good organization and good resources will never tell you what to do. What they will do is, so that's one thing I know I learned um, Mm -hmm. that what you think for a survivor is not necessarily best for them. So um, this is just obviously my opinion, and I don't want anyone who might be in a situation um, like this to feel like they have to do this. Um, But yeah, just clarifying that because I know that brings the dynamic of power away from the abuser and to the advocate. So we talk about that during our trainings that like, if you think someone should do something, don't tell them. You can tell them like different scenarios of if they did this, this would be the consequences, but that don't tell them. Sense. Yeah. Cause then you'd be taking away the power from the abuser that they have and giving it to yourself, not yeah. to the survivor. So I know one thing that we always advise though, is that to have, um, a place where your important documents are. So you always want to make sure you have your documents safe. Um, so if in the incidents you do need to leave, like if something comes happens that you need to leave the situation, you have your documents ready. Um, that way, for example, your passport, your birth certificate, your social security, these things you have, you have them ready to go um, because that's the most important things that you're going to need. Yeah. Um, um, unless that person 
knows where that stuff is, right? Yeah. So you mean you might not even know that you don't have them. Um, yeah. I think one of the most shocking cases I've ever worked with um, was that I had this one survivor who I worked with for like two years and we were in the middle of her case and I never thought to ask her to see it. And she told me she had a green card. She's like, oh, I've had a green card. And it made sense. She was in the U.S. for over 20 years. Uh, so I was working with her and in the sense that I would accompany her to her court dates. So I wasn't her lawyer. I was just sitting there as a support. So as a friend, an ally, I would just go to every one of her court hearings. So she would say proudly and very confidently like, oh, I have a green card. My husband has it. He won't give it to me. And throughout this case, that was the scenario. And then one day the judge said, you need to bring her green card. And when he was like, he was on the record, he said, I never applied for it. And I honestly, like, I still get, like, I'm, I still get chills. Like I was so shocked. Like it's been over 20 years. She was oh supposed God. to get it three years after their marriage and they were married for over 20 years and he never applied for it. And she trusted him so much that she never even questioned it. So I remember after she like broke down and we talked about it and she's like, I never thought to ask him to see it. He told me he had it. So I believed him. So that's also a big issue, right? Like you want to, obviously you want to trust your spouse. Like I'm not saying don't trust your spouse. Like if you're um, an immigrant or someone who is on a dependent visa, but you want to make sure you see those documents yourself, right? Like you also want to make sure that you're aware of these things. Um, one of the best ways to do this is that so many um Local courthouses, local, um, local uh, state-sanctioned areas have um, workshops on know knowing your rights. Um, know your rights is a very common um, event name where you can just uh, literally Google know your rights in your community, and most courthouses have seminars to talk about this. Like, um, what is this paperwork? Because a lot of the times people don't know how to file their own paperwork because they are dependent on someone else, and that's also an issue that comes up. So you want to make sure you understand um, what your status is, because that is going to be a question. Um, to seek resources, you're not supposed to ask status in the sense that if you were to call a hotline, they will not ask you whether you are documented or not. They're not supposed to. Um, so you do not need to disclose that to someone. But when it comes to connecting you to the right sources and when your case does proceed, if you were to take it that way, that is going to be a question that arises so that they know what needs to be filed for you. Um, so you want to know, make sure that you know yourself, what your statuses are, what your rights are. So you are familiar with this. Um, and this goes back to like the case with children as well. If you have a child and your child is a citizen because your spouse is, but you aren't a citizen yet because you haven't gotten your green card. There is also that issue where you might um, face an incident where on um, custody. Um, I know a big issue that I've seen is that you also don't want to take advice without understanding it, especially when it comes to legal advice. I cannot, cannot stress this more than enough. Um, I had uh, an instance where a family member told someone, um, okay, take your kids and go to India. As soon as that woman boarded that plane, she lost custody of her kids um, because it was kidnapping. The children were under 18. If you take your children somewhere without the permission of your spouse and their children are under 18, if your uh, spouse goes to the police, you just kidnapped your children. So this woman oh ended God. up having, yeah, a kidnapping charge and lost custody of her kids. And I think it was about like seven, six, like seven or eight years till she sees her kids now, which is 
they've been fighting it. And I left the organization, so I'm not sure update on that, but it was very unfortunate and messy situation when I did leave. And just hearing that, like, right, like you would never think like taking your children on a trip is kidnapping. Um, but if your spouse is vengeful and they want to report it, it is. Um, so it's just to think about that, like little things like this, like it's very important to understand, um, legalities and also to understand, um, just what you can do. Um, I know a lot of times because people fear the police, if they are immigrants, uh, they won't call the police. So what happens is like, um, specifically let's say in Pakistan, right? People have this image that the police can easily be corrupted. You can give them money. So let's say your spouse tells you, oh, if you call the police, I'm just going to give the police money. And now if you are from Pakistan, you might think, oh my God, that's so true. Why am I going to call the police? They're just going to arrest me. So just understanding the dynamics of um, what resources you have, what, um, and kind of trusting what you can have and what you can have um, is also important because um, kind of blindly listening to someone often becomes a bigger issue and not saying survivors obviously do that. Um, I'm just giving scenarios that end up happening. So the best thing um, to do is just knowing that like uh, having like somebody you can talk to um, is one thing. Like hopefully, I hope the people who are uh, facing these issues do have a support system um, and just making sure that they understand their rights. Mm-hmm. And what about kind of the other side of that that we were talking about before when people are educated and people do seem or seem to be people who have resources, um, how can they get out of these? Like, what are, I guess, the not that, you know, not that you're actually giving real advice, but I guess what are kind of some of the things that they could do that you've seen at least? Yeah, so, um, I mean, every, every obviously situation varies like person to person, right? So mm-hmm. every case is different case by case. Like you never know um, what's going to happen. Um, I know like a lot of the times, like I have this one case that, um, uh, I didn't work with specifically, but it's one of my uh, colleagues did. And it was a phenomenal, like a phenomenal case. Um, we had this woman who did not speak English, um, did not like know how to read nothing. She had a son in preschool and she somehow communicated to the teacher that she wanted books. Um, the teacher started sending her preschool books. She's taught herself how to read and write all by herself through learning from her child's her books. After that, um, this woman planned for years. So she made like an entire plan of how she was going to leave her relationship. Um, and one day she just left. And I think it took her like 10, 15 years to leave. But the fact that like she, sorry, I'm not getting choked up. Cause she's like, I met this woman and she was incredible. Like probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. And she, um, her case was she was stabbed more than 15 times by her husband at one point. And she still stayed in the relationship just to, so that she could finish up her education. And so she was able to get a job. She now like started her own like truck business. So it's like incredible. She's like a food truck and everything in Jersey. And this woman, um, you know, like build herself up. So every situation is different. So this woman taught herself, right. And was able to create a plan for herself, um, a lot of times we've seen situations where people who are educated will make spaces for themselves, like slowly start um, communicating with different people what's going on, um, making plans. So kind of having a plan of action is like the first step, like um, mapping out what scenarios happen and usually like contacting um, 
someone like advocates is like the, the best way people do this is so that advocates have on record that this person is calling them. Um, and it could be like calling from a friend's house. Um, often we like people will save um, our like different hotline numbers as friends names um, because you end up having a specific advocate you're working with. So um, in a situation where someone is educated, has a good background, um, they know what they're doing. It might be that maybe you plan that one day after you don't come home from after work. Mm-hmm. could be that. Um, so kind of mapping out like what your day-to-day is or what your um, abuser's day-to-day is kind of like, like thinking about that. And that again, doesn't go into education as well. Like it could, someone might have this situation as well if they're not as educated. But I think when it comes to educational communities, the one big difference that people don't realize is that um, it's the community sport that's lacking and it's because of all the stereotypes that people have and um, the different expectations people have for these communities. So it's mainly like supporting like the community that needs to work on the support, not the survivor. So the survivor has the same barriers as anyone else, but maybe more because they have this expectation against them. Like people think like, okay, because they are um, educated, they don't need resources, but it's kind of the community that needs to work on that. So not the survivors specifically, the community needs to work on the idea that domestic violence, sexual assault does not discriminate, that Mm -hmm. these issues don't just affect one community. Yes, it may be reported in one community. And then that comes back to the whole thing too. Like just because it's being reported in one community doesn't mean it's only happening in that community. So when you look at um, issues, for example, of bringing on to like my work, right? ICE. Everyone always believes that ICE only detains um, uh, Latinx people. And mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people like, oh, like, how does ICE have to do with South Asian communities? Because, you know, they're not being arrested. They're not in ICE detention centers. Actually, the majority of DACA recipients were South Asian, um, if you think about it. If you look into statistics, there are ICE facilities that have South Asian populations as well, but it's just underreported because these communities don't focus on these issues. Um, And it all goes back to where you're shedding the light on, right? So like a lot of nonprofit organizations, unfortunately, you see them working in rural areas um, in the slums of like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. So they're focusing all their energy there because they know that those issues are there, but it's because they're silenced in other communities, not because they're non-existent. So it's kind of like bringing that whole, like um, unlearning that within yourself so that you understand what a survivor could be going through because issues to be survivor centered, right? So we need to kind of start as a community, um, as a whole, realizing that these issues affect different people. And that's the only way we're going to have progress and have resources and the ability for these people to leave these situations if we as a whole understand that they even exist. So what can we as community members do to spread the knowledge and support these causes? So right now, honestly, the biggest thing is social media. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of these organizations um, are trying to revamp those spaces. So like I know specifically when I worked at Monavi, um, a lot of the times advocates are older and there's a lot of turnaround um, turn and turn uh, because why? Because you get burnout. So unfortunately, people who work in these spaces are expected to do so much because you have to work with not only survivors, but you have to work with the community members to understand as well. 
So the biggest way, honestly, right now for anyone um, to help out is through social media and just helping out with awareness. So I know that um, there's always like that issue where people say like, so performative activism, right? I can be looked at at two ways. I remember when I first joined um, the nonprofit space in these sectors and we had these conversations with different organizations, they would say like the Me Too movement, people just show up, they hold signs they don't actually care about survivors. Now, I remember the other side of it, somebody mentioned was like, okay, how can we leverage that? Because let's say this person has like a million followers. They don't care about the issue, but they showed up with a sign. Um, Can we reach out to them and say, can you give us a shout out? Because that way their followers will hear about the organization. So Mm -hmm. social media in that sense has a very strong following, strong um, power. And it's, easily um, able to influence people. So just by sharing little facts, and you see that through Black Lives Matter as well, where there was that Blackout Tuesday where so many people posted Black Square. And there was other people who said, let me use this Black Square to also post um, different resources. Um, Because you never know who in your followers might be someone who needs this help. So the biggest thing is honestly to uplift these organizations because burnout is real. Most of these organizations have people who have been working there for years because of passion and also because um, turnaround is really, really strong. Like honestly, um, in my working years, like I saw like new people coming in and going constantly because um, unfortunately, while we support survivors, we don't have support ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's because not only are advocates usually super, super underpaid like I cannot influence like I cannot emphasize that enough how underpaid advocates are um because nobody wants to stay in that job because it's underpaid unfortunately so there's that you um and then on top of that if you're not supported by the community how can you uplift others if you're not being uplifted yourself and that burnout starts to hit over years because of all the trauma that you kind of hear happening in the community um and in that sense it was um, I remember I personally thought uh, I was also um, a Muslim advocate. So I worked with a lot of um, Muslim communities and I thought, okay, I'm from this Muslim community. So they're going to open me with like, uh, come to me with open arms and let me speak about these issues. No, I had some communities I went, went to that I'm a part of and they said, this isn't happening in our community. So we're not going to talk about it. And that's a bigger issue. So mm-hmm. I think just in general, maybe volunteering and doesn't mean that you have to volunteer in the capacity where you work directly with one-on-one services with survivors, but maybe volunteering to create awareness, volunteering to find spaces that will welcome these conversations. And of course, these conversations always start at home first, kind of creating that awareness um, with any issue at home, like what is this, educating yourself about it and just being able to share that on your feed itself or like whether it is with a friend group that, hey, you know, I support survivors and if something like this happens, I want any of you to feel comfortable enough to come to me is a big step because having someone, like sometimes people just want someone to listen. Like they don't want answers. They want someone to listen to validate how they feel. And that's a very, very big thing um, that people kind of dismiss. But yeah, no, um, when it comes to South Asians specifically, there's like almost, I think, 16 organizations nationwide um, that work on these issues. And there's both men and women advocates. So I don't um, want anyone to ever feel like, oh, if I'm a man, I can't help out. Yeah, you can. Like there are ways that men can also advocate for these issues. It's just 
normally um, because this issue is more focused on women because of the different dynamics that women um, often faced. Uh, Gender-based violence usually focuses on women, but that doesn't mean that it's um, only inclusive of that. Yeah, and so so I'll have like a whole list of resources uh, from Aisha on the TDC podcast website. Uh, Aisha, thank you so much for this episode. This is a hard one, but a good one. (laughs) Like I, I'm so glad we got to talk about this, and um, you have been just so amazing and so receptive. And I really appreciate you creating this space for everyone in general to talk about so many different issues. And thank you again. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for saying that. No, I, I just I just want the the education to be out there and I, I hope that, you know, your words go into people's ears and leave leave an impact, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're you're killing it. <laughs> I'm like honored to be part of your podcast. I'm like, ah oh. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. Um Actually, before I end, was there anything else that I didn't really ask you about that you wanted to cover? No, um, honestly, again, it's all about um, community mindset. So to everyone listening, the most important thing is like being there for someone. So you might not know where to start, but honestly, listening is the biggest start. So just thinking about that, having a survivor-centered mindset at all times that what you might think is best might not be best for this person. So to always have that understanding. And again, like the whole like judging thing, right? Like I feel like often people kind of think like if I was in this situation, I would have been able to walk away. But the truth is you're not in that situation. So you don't know. So we covered this before, but it's just like a little reminder, like to realize that everyone's situation differs and we need to be understanding of that. Yeah, I actually also want to point out that just because you don't think someone in your life is going through this you just you really never know um Mm -hmm. it's like we talked about before there's a mask that we put on especially among those who are more affluent and educated Mm -hmm. so i think being outwardly open to to being supportive and um raising awareness is gonna make more of a difference in someone's life than you realize Mm mm-hmm no, I, I agree. I, I definitely seen that myself that um, I actually like going back to that, right? I had, we had this one person, I didn't know her personally. Um, and it was an organization that was local to where I was um, when I worked at Monavi, so in the New Brunswick area and their executive director. So the person who handled and worked with and managed all the advocates who were doing this work um, died of domestic violence. So <gasps> imagine that someone who was teaching people and like educating people how to um, access these resources. Someone who was compiling these resources um, was a victim of domestic violence herself and nobody knew. And why? Because she was the executive director of this organization. So because she was this like huge figure in the community and she represented this organization, she was the face of um, this organization. No one knew that she Mm -hmm. herself was facing it. So I think that's a big issue too that people don't realize that even if you have all the resources, you might also be facing something yourself. So yeah, that's a, it's like the masks we wear, which is a unfortunate uh, reality. How did that eventually come to light that she was going through that? 
So it was in the news. Um, so when she, yeah, so I, I read about it because um, I remember I was at work and somebody mentioned it. And I don't want to say the wrong organization because there were two organizations in the area. So I don't want to uh, name drop it. But I remember um, it was in like the local newspaper and like our organization had a staff meeting. And we were like, oh my God, do you remember this person? Um, her husband like killed her and everyone was like what and it's kind of very big shock and then um it was in the paper so there was a whole article in the paper how he was arrested and apparently he was abusing her for years and nobody knew and it, it was really sad because she was the executive director of an organization so it wasn't just like okay like um you know she was just like volunteering she literally was the image of an organization so that was a really mind-opening thing because i think it happened um i want to say in 2016 or so, 2016, 2017. So when I was um, like newly working there, but um, yeah, no, it's uh, like you, you. That's so shocking. You never know. Yeah, it goes back to like the fact that you never know what's going on in someone's life. Um, because this person was like doing trainings on how to train yeah. people to help the community, and she needed help herself. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the takeaway is. Do your best to to be to be open and inviting and, yeah. and learn just as present. Much. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, if you found it valuable, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about this podcast. If you have thoughts and would like to reach out, you can do so on Facebook and Instagram at the Daisy Condition, or on Twitter at TDC Podcast, or email us at the Daisy Condition at gmail.com. Aisha, how do we find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram or just honestly, just Google me. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll have all your socials on, on Instagram, on the post, on the, you know, episode description and everything. So, you know, you'll be able to find Aisha. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope you are warm. I hope you're safe. I hope you're making good choices and I will talk to you next time.